If you were with us last week, uh, you know that we didn't finish our study of 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. It was in this passage or that passage that we were seeking, seeking to answer a question. I had laid this question out before us. What can I be certain of in the midst of uncertainty? What can I be certain of in the midst of uncertainty? Now, the general occasion for such a question is simply that you and I experience doubts or uncertainty in our walk with the Lord. We all do. Uh, it might be the case that a certain sin has taken root or that we are fighting to understand the connection between what we believe and how we're living, uh, belief and obedience. Uh, it might be as well that we find ourselves in a certain situation that causes us to question why God has allowed such things to enter into our life. Maybe it's a certain suffering or persecution uh, that has come into our life and we're kind of questioning, why would this happen to me? In either case, the water of uncertainty is rising in our situation and we find that our faith may be under threat. Now, the specific occasion for this message or this question, what can I be certain of while in the midst of uncertainty relates to the changes we're experiencing here at Rosedale Bible Church. And I explained this last week. With the retirement of our senior pastor, I wanted to address the, address the unsureness our situation might cause. My hope is that the Lord might strengthen us through the power of his word so that in the coming season, we might possess confidence. Uh, we might possess the Christian certainty uh, that would safeguard or preserve our life against the rising waters of uncertainty and doubt. And so that was the specific occasion for this message or these two messages. And so as we begin, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read our sermon text this morning. As is, as is our habit here at Rosedale Bible Church, we usually stand under the reading of God's Word. And so uh, if, if you would, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he, that is Christ, who is born of God, protects him, the believer, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, last week, I, as I introduced this passage, I told you that uh, it contained five Christian certainties for those with a faith under threat. Five Christian certainties for those with a faith under threat. I gave you two of them last week. Uh, if I could amend our thesis a little bit, just expand it out, maybe we'd say it this way. John gives us five Christian certainties so that we might find confidence when our faith comes under threat. Like I said, I gave you two certainties last week. The first one was this. Number one, it comes from verse 13. God has granted you eternal life. 
John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to know that we possess here and now a present certainty of the life we have received in Christ. And this is not the kind of knowledge that John intends for us to grow gradually into. That's not what he's speaking of here. Uh, This is a truth that, that ought to be fixed in our mind. Believing in the name of the Son of God means that you and I have eternal life. We have eternal life. Look just above our text at verses 11 and 12 from the same chapter. John writes, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. To have the Son is to have eternal life. Recall from last week, I told you certainty is the fruit that grows out of the root of faith. And as an implication, this kind of certainty means that we don't need to trouble ourselves with controlling every detail of our lives. We don't need to worry if things don't go as planned. They probably won't, as you know. Furthermore, we don't have to cling to worldly goods. Although we don't know what tomorrow will bring, knowing that we have eternal life allows us to release the white-knuckle grip that you and I have on our plans and our goods. The knowledge of eternal life liberates both the overbearing and the hoarder. It frees us to trust and to give. The second certainty came in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So God not only grants us eternal life or gives us eternal life, but number two, he hears your prayers. Obtaining eternal life means we can approach God with confidence. And as we discovered last week, we can ask anything according to his will. You and I are free to to pray whatever we wish. But of course, the, the prayers that are going to be answered are those that lay not within our will, but within God's will. So here we're reminded of the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. You remember, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So we ask for anything according to his will. Now, as, a, as important it is, as it is for us to understand that point, uh, that, that's not the major point that John is making in this text. He brings it up, but really it's found in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If we know that he hears us, then we know that he has our requests. That's the main point. The point is not that we, we, we're under some debate with God about what we want, what he's going to give us. Rather, it's just that he hears us. We can have this confidence that God hears us. God hears our prayers. And so here's what we know in the midst of uncertainty. God hears your prayers. He has our requests. When our faith comes under threat, you must know, we must know, that God hears us. According to prayer, according to John, prayer is, quote, a bulwark against despair. And hope and confidence thrive in the certainty that God listens to his children. And so we move now into our third certainty. That was all review from last week. 
Our third certainty will come to us in verse 18, but there's something we have to deal with before we get there. And so I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. And then I'll, if you'll allow me to, I'm going to hold off before I give you the third certainty and explain verses 16 and 17. Again, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And then verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. There's no doubt, as I think I expressed it last week, that the the most challenging parts of this section that we're working through are contained in verses 16 and 17. One author commented that an avalanche of exegetical and theological discussion has come from these verses, and no doubt that is true. We can sum up the challenges in two questions, and I think if we can answer these two questions, then we can come to a a conclusion on what this means. Uh, The first question is this, what are the sins that lead to death? What are those sins that lead to death? And the second question is, why would John tell believers not to pray for those who commit such sins? And so if we can answer these two questions, I think we're on our way to understanding what this means. Uh, now, as you might assume, we could spend a lot of time talking about all the possible solutions here to this problem. And so we're not going to do that on a Sunday morning. I can't do that here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to teach through and, and preach what I believe is the right interpretation. And so if you have any problems with that, you can come after, come after me later. Uh, but I'll, I'll hope to give an adequate explanation for what these sins are that lead to death and why in the world John would tell us not to pray uh, for a person that commits such sins. So number one, what are sins that lead to death? Let's uh, go with the first question. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you the answer and then I'm going to explain it. So here's my answer. Here's a sin that leads to death. Sins that lead to death are those that, number one, demonstrate persistent rebellion to the commands of God, and number two, are committed by those who are unrepentant and appear to have a heart unchanged by God. I'll give you that definition again. Sins that lead to death are those that demonstrate persistent rebellion to the commands of God, and number two, are committed by those who are unrepentant and appear to have a heart unchanged by God. If you want the cliff notes, persistent rebellion, unrepentant. Those are the cliff notes. I know we're not studying the book of 1 John right now, but if you go back, you're probably familiar enough with the book. If you go back to chapter 3, I'll remind you of some of the context that, that John is speaking into and what he has already uh, argued. And so chapter 3, verse 4 And following, chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Of course, him is Christ. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Pretty stark statements from John about what it looks like to be a believer. To claim to be born of God and to live in persistent rebellion to the commands of God is outside the logic of Christianity, according to John. Notice verse 18, and it's right in our section here. Verse 18 makes the the same point. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Those Those who are born again do not keep on sinning. The sin that leads to death is a violation of terms, you might say. To live in persistent, unrepentant, open-handed sin is to give testimony, to give the very testimony to unforgiveness and unbelief. So one of the major teachings found in 1 John is this truth that those who have been given life in the Son will be protected from living a life of sin. If you want a, a, another reference on this, I, would, I don't have time this morning, but if, if you were to go to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, Paul makes exactly the same point that we're not slaves of of unrighteousness. We're slaves of righteousness. And so God has affected us and changed us in such a way that we no longer live in persistent, unrebellious, open-handed sin. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter six. I like the way William Barclay uh, describes the difference between uh, one committing a sin not leading to death and the one committing sins leading to death. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's really helpful Uh, He says this, he says, there's a man who may be said to sin against his will. He sins because he is swept away by a passion or a desire, which at the moment is too strong for him. His sin is not so much a matter of choice as, as it is of compulsion, which he is not able to resist. Well, that's a sin not leading to death. This is the sin that, uh, you might remember in the book of uh, James, Right? James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He, he, he trips up into it. You might say he's, he's caught into it like a, a fish caught under uh, with a hook. On the other hand, there's a man who sins completely deliberately in cold blood with his eyes wide open of set purpose taking his own way even when he is well aware that it is wrong. That's a sin leading to death. There's a man who hates his own sin In the moment of temptation, he falls to sin, but afterwards, he hates his sin, and he hates himself. I believe you can relate to that. You hate your sin because you don't commit sins that lead to death. On the other hand, there's a man who rejoices in his sin, the man who never even thinks of temptation as an evil thing at all, and who, when he has sinned, he has no regrets whatsoever. There's a man who is ashamed of his sin and whose one desire is to hide it. He has never any doubt that he has done the wrong thing. On the other hand, there is a man who glories in his sin and who boasts of it and who has no sense of shame. He is proud that he knows how to sin and how, as he thinks, to get away with it. There is the man who is fundamentally sorry for his sin and the the man who fundamentally delights in his sin. The difference between committing a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death. And so Barclay summarizes, the sin unto death is the state of the man who has listened to sin so often and refused to listen to God so often that he has come to a state when he loves his sin and when he regards sin as the most profitable thing in the world. So my definition again. Sins that lead to death are those that demonstrate, number one, persistent rebellion to the commands of God 
and are committed by those who, number two, are unrepentant and appear to have a heart unchanged by God. So all of that leads us to our second question. And my, my explanation of, of sins that lead to death will lead us to, uh, will make the second question maybe more challenging than the first. And so, number two, why does John tell believers not to pray for those who commit sins leading to death? Why would he say that? I mean, aren't these exactly the people we ought to be praying for? So you can see that's the rub here. That's the challenge with this interpretation. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wouldn't those who persecute us be these very people? Wouldn't they be rebellious and unrepentant? The Apostle Paul made this request of his opponents. He prayed that God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so you have a command from Jesus and you have an example in Paul that don't seem to jibe with the idea that you and I are not to pray for the rebellious and unrepentant. If in fact this is what John means when he says a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death. <clears throat> Hopefully you follow where I'm at and you follow the tension that's there if I've explained myself and I've spoken myself clear enough. Uh, all of this has, has led me to a passage in the Old Testament. It's led me to an example in the book of Jeremiah. And so uh, if you want to go there with me, I would encourage you to maybe glance over at Jeremiah chapter 11 because I think there might be uh, an illustration in the life of Jeremiah that might help us to relieve some of this tension uh, or at least find a, a solution here that's adequate. This is Jeremiah chapter 11. Uh, maybe a little background. The, the kingdom of Israel had been divided at this point in the book of uh, Jeremiah. The, the northern kingdom had already been taken away by the Assyrians. And so Jeremiah is a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. And the Babylonians, you remember those guys, they're going to come in and uh, destroy, take captive uh, Judah. And so Jeremiah chapter 11 the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God that I might confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. Then I answered, so be it, Lord. So we remember that, that Israel was in Egypt and God delivered them from Egypt and gave them a law. That's what the, 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 the Pentateuch, the first five books are, of the Bible are about. And if you go back and review Deuteronomy, as you know, that's that, that oath covenant that, that he gave to his people. And, and when all of those stipulations of that covenant were laid out, the people agreed. The blessings and the curses were laid out to the nation of Israel, and they said, yes, we will obey. And in obedience of that, God is fulfilling those promises given to the fathers, that they would have a land, and they would have, there would be a seed promise, and that they would be a blessing to all the nations if they, in fact, did that, if they followed God's commands. Jeremiah agrees. That's true. 
Verse 6, And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them out of this land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought them, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. And namely, it was that a foreign army would come in and lay siege in their land and take them away, which had already happened in the northern kingdom and was about to happen in the southern kingdom. God was fulfilling the promises that he said, if you don't obey me, a foreign army is going to come in and crush you. And so here we are in the, at the brink of disaster, and this is happening. Verse 9, again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy against exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing, upon, bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go out and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings. But they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. Of course they can't. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Why would I spend so much time doing this? Why would I bring you to Jeremiah? This is why. Therefore, verse 14, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf. For I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. Interestingly, you have a situation where God's people have, so, have gone so far in rebellion that God actually says to Jeremiah the prophet, don't pray for them. When you pray, I'm not even going to hear, hear you. Interesting. Is it exactly what we're, we're dealing with in 1 John? Maybe. I think there is somewhat of a parallel. If I might point out one other verse, you recall Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, his high, high priestly prayer. It's often called his high priestly prayer. It's the night before he was betrayed and crucified. He prays and he says something pretty interesting. Starting at verse 6, this is John 17, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So you might even say verse 9 is the commencement of this prayer. And so here we go. I am praying for them. Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jeremiah, there's a command from God to not pray for God's people, Judah. And here you have Jesus in his high priestly prayer who's saying, I'm not praying for the world. Well, certainly the world would be those who are rebellious and unrepentant. He's only praying for those who the Father gave to him for his people, his sheep, you might say. Now, in none of these examples 
does it say sins that lead to death? I acknowledge that, they're, that they are unique and it doesn't have the exact same context. However, I, I do believe there are some parallels here that help us maybe understand or leave room for the idea that for, for some, that persist in rebellion, that commit open-handed sin, there is a time in which we are to not pray for those people. And so let's go back to 1 John chapter 5. I want to read those verses again so we can, we can have them in our minds. 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. One other thought just came to my mind. I'm off my notes now and I don't know where I was, so I'll just have to fly solo here. Uh, but if you think about the context as well, these, these men that com- these people that committed sins that lead to death, you remember in chapter 2, verse 18, John says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That is, that it might become plain that they are not of us. And so here, even in the context, there appears to be Antichrist, false prophets, of course, that are denying that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. You have those that are denying that, you know, the, the, tru- the central tenets of, of God. They were in the church, they're spreading lies, and they left the church. Well, that seems to be a person that's committing a sin that leads to death. They've left the church. They're spreading lies. He talks about this again. In chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So again, in this context, we have an example of those who would fit, ex- who would fit this exactly. These would be those who are committing sins that lead to death. They're denying Jesus, denying God, spreading lies, and they've left the church committing sins that lead to death. And so John is saying here, I do not say that you pray for them. And I acknowledge that is a hard truth. And I also acknowledge that I I don't know exactly where John's instructions begin. I don't know where they start. For example, who determines when a person's rebellion qualifies as a sin leading to death? Who's to judge that? When do we make that call? I'm not sure where that begins. And maybe even a harder point is that I acknowledge that in our lives, so often those who are rebellious and unrepentant are those that we love the most. They're those who we love the most. Our parents, maybe a spouse, maybe our own children. So what are we supposed to do when there's a person that is persistently rebellious and they're unrepentant and we love them with the deepest possible love you might have for another person. To that, I don't have an answer. 
But there is a question that we must ask, and we must ask, and it relates to those who appear to have a heart unchanged by God. And it's this, can we say in full obedience as it relates to the persistently rebellious and the unrepentant, as scripture says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a hard truth of scripture. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in in the circle of that is God's wrath and God's judgment against the unbeliever. I can't get away from that. To get away from that is to get away from some of the hardest parts of Scripture. I don't know where this sits with you. I don't know what convictions you have in your own heart related to this issue. And I don't want to kind of sand the the corners of your conviction off. Uh, But to honor the text, we do need to acknowledge that John is not forbidding by command praying for those who commit sins that lead to death. It's not a command. And in fact, in the Greek, it is somewhat ambiguous. It's somewhat soft. And it does come through in the English language the way that we read it. You know, John just simply says, I do not say that one should pray for that. It's not a command. He's not saying don't pray for these people. He's just saying, I'm not saying you should pray for those ones. So he does say it in kind of a a soft way, if I can say it that way, a soft way. Now, I haven't given you the third certainty, so all of this serves to reinforce our third certainty, and this is our third certainty. God has freed you from the bondage of sin. God has freed you from the bondage of sin. You don't commit sins that lead to death because of God's work in your life. Our ongoing battle with sin often leaves us doubting what we believe. It can lead us to question whether or not we are Christian. It's easy for us to look at kind of the external things around us but we fail to see that it's the heart that matters. It's that we do hate our sin. Even though we trip up and we stumble into it, we're, we're, we're fighting against it constantly. And so we're not committing sins that lead to death. As believers, we don't commit sins that lead to death because, look at verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Why? Because Christ, who was born of God, the one who was born of God himself, protects us. He protects the believer, and the evil one does not touch him. I want you to realize that this verse describes you. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a promise. This is a present Christian certainty. God has freed you from the bondage of sin. Chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, this verse, he has been born of God, in the Greek indicates that the new birth is a religious experience with continuing results, right? The privilege of being born again remain. And one of the greatest privileges is that you and I are freed from the bondage of sin. We do not keep on sinning, as I read in chapter 3. The verse expresses the idea not that we don't slip into acts of sin. Of course we do. The Bible doesn't teach perfectionism. We're not going to be perfect, We do slip into acts of sin, but we do not persist in sin habitually. We don't practice lawlessness, as it says in chapter 3, as John says. We don't live in sin. John Stott writes, quote, The new birth results in new behaviors. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. When sin begins to shake your faith, 
when you begin to question how a believer can struggle for years in sin, when you're tempted to give up or throw in the towel, cling to the knowledge that you hate your sin and it's your heart's desire to please the Lord. That's what you have to grab onto, that you hate it. If you love your sin, you need to repent. But you hate your sin. You want to throw it off. That's what makes you a believer. And your faith is under threat because of sin. Find certainty in the fact that God has freed you from the bondage of sin. And so I've given you three, thir- three certainties. God has given us, granted us eternal life. He hears our prayers and he's freed you from bondage of sin and death. And there's a fourth certainty that comes in verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is our fourth certainty. God has marked you as his own. God has marked you as his own. We know that we are from God because we have been born of God. We are not only created or formed physically, but we have as Christians been born again. We have been recreated. And when John says we are from God, he asserts a fact that you have been born of God. It's a fact. It's not, not a mere idea. He asserts a fact. You have been born again. Now, what does it look like to be gripped by the certainty that God has marked you as his own? It means that from inside of us, there's a source that can dissolve or deliver us from the bondage of sin and, sin and shatter any power that worldly fear or pleasure might have over us. Being marked as God's own means living or dying, we are, as Paul says, more than conquerors. Now, John does set this forth certainty in the context of the whole world, right? to the whole world, or in contrast, excuse me, to the whole world. And that whole world lies or languishes, he says, under the evil one, under the power of the evil one. Now, up to this point in the letter, John has talked about the world in many ways. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He speaks of the world in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. You remember chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He's already spoken about the world in many ways. What does it mean? What, what is this? How do we define the world when John uses it this way? Is he speaking of the, first, the physical world? Well, we know that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God, you know, we read that the, the earth is very good. The world is very good. The created physical order is very good. And in fact, from Psalm 19, Psalm 104, we read that the, the creation actually demonstrates or displays the glory of God. So John's probably not talking about the physical world here in these verses. Maybe he's talking about the world of humanity, the world of humanity, uh, humanity in general. God has commanded us to love our neighbor so it seems unlikely that, that we're talking about do not love the world in this way. It's probably not talking about humanity in general. In fact, James defined true religion as visiting or caring for orphans and widows in their affliction. Remember that, James 1.27. It was the love of humanity, in fact, that Jesus spoke of in John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world, 
He loved humanity in this way. In what way, John or Jesus? You know, that he gave his only son. He gave his unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's how God loved humanity. So it's unlikely that John is speaking of either the physical creation or the, the, the humanity in general. He must be speaking about something else. What is this world that John is speaking of? Well, this world that lies in the power of the evil one is a reference to the invisible spiritual system of evil, as you know, that is governed by Satan. And it's this realm, well, it's really more than a realm. It, it's even spoken of as a way of life. Do you remember the book of Ephesians? We recently studied that. Danny took us through that. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, uh, Paul says, as unbelievers, we followed the course of this world. It was a way of life for us. We followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The world that both Paul and John speak of is what Jesus spoke of when he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is the world that is in the power of the evil one. It is this world and its invisible system of evil that lies in the power of the evil one. Importantly, uh, John does not say that the world is of the evil one. Satan did not create this world. Rather, he is the usurper who has control over it for a time. For a time, Satan controls the world with a tyrannical authority, organizing and orchestrating its life and activities to express his own rebellion and hatred against God. You remember Jesus himself spoke of Satan as the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. Having said that, let's return to what John says we know, verse 19. We know that we are from God. Believer, be certain of this. God has marked you as his own. We do not love this world or the things of this world because the Father's love is in us. And so we don't love the world. You remember Titus chapter 3. You remember that says that we have been, uh, when, when he appeared, he saved us, not because of the works that we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's a transformation that's happened in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But we've been changed. As he says here, you've been washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As believers, we are marked as God's own. As much as these verses remind us of our standing, and believer, I want you to be, I want you to find confidence in your standing before the Lord. I want that. They also remind us that there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground between God and the devil. There are two spiritual realms. There are two spiritual masters. There's no third option. It's a hard truth. You have either bent the knee to Christ or you pledge allegiance to the ruler of this world. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. 
James said, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. From the early pages of Scripture, the words of Joshua thunder forth, choose this day whom you will serve. You're free to choose your master, but you are not free to be without a master. Moving on to our fifth certainty, comes in verse 20. This is the last certainty that we have here. And there's a lot of ideas contained in in verse 20. There's a, a lot of things to be certain of in verse 20. However, I've just capitalized on one. And it's this, God has given you understanding. God has given you understanding. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Now, the first thing we have to acknowledge in this verse is that it says we know that the Son of God has come. We know that the Son of God has come. Now, this might be obvious It is obvious at this point in the letter. For everything John has said hinges on the fact that Jesus came. If Jesus didn't come, then why in the world is he saying all of this? And he he is here at the very end of his letter. This, however, might serve to remind us that that because he came, we can anticipate that he will come again. That vindication is coming. And secondly, which is the major point I'm focusing on here, is that the Son of God has given understanding. God has not only given us his love, he's given us his commands, he's given us his spirit, he's given us eternal life, as we saw in chapter, in verses 13 there. He's given us all these things, but he's also given us the faculties or the ability to understand these things. He's given us understanding to take hold of all of these realities. Now, you know that understanding is a mind word. It has to do with our mind. It relates to our thinking or our cognition. The author of Hebrews uses the word in chapter 8, verse 10, speaking of the new covenant, the Lord will put his law into our minds. He'll put his law, his commands, into our minds. He'll write them on our hearts. You remember Peter called us in 1 Peter 1.13 to prepare your minds for action, literally to gird up the loins of your mind. With the certainty that Jesus has come and that he has given us understanding, John connects both what happened historically to our actual experience as believers. What happened in the, in the past has present implications. You and I are able to discern, to understand true reality. I like what Francis Schaeffer often talks about, true truth. We can discern true truth. The Greek word for understanding is a compound word, and it means a through mind, a through mind. Hebert writes, it denotes the ability to pass beyond the external and superficial to discern and understand true reality, true reality. What is true reality? What is, Schaefer said, what is true truth? As I thought to answer that question, I couldn't think of anything better than John's purpose statement, John's purpose statement in his gospel. You remember John's purpose statement in the gospel. I know we're not in the gospel, but if there's one thing, one thing that is true truth, the ultimate reality that we need to know, I think it's this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. That is the gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I don't know what else to say. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life so that you'd know him, that you'd have life in his name. It's a profound truth. It is, in fact, true truth. You and I might not know the divisions of Euclidean geometry. We might not be able to explain Plato's forms. Man, I've tried to figure those out. You might not be able to explain how gravity operates in a black hole. You might not be able to name a, written by, a novel written by Dostoevsky. You might not be able to say his name or even know that he was an author. You might not be able to explain the philosophy of Descartes, Voltaire, Kant, Nietzsche, or Foucault. You might not know where the Beatles got their name. You get the idea. None of this you may know, but this you can be certain of, that the Son of God has come. And, as Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? To save sinners. And I love 2 Timothy 1.12. We said it last week. Paul says, I'm what I am, we are not ashamed, for we know in whom we have believed, and we're convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to us. Let me remind you, again, that John is writing this letter to Christians who are under threat. They're under threat. There's a different threat than we experience. These are antichrists and false teachers that are spreading lies in, into the church. But he is writing to help believers uh, not only refute heretical claims, but to give them certainty, to give them certainty. He's writing to those with a faith under threat. Just a couple more things as I close. As I've tried to apply this entire section to our context, I've tried to connect John's context to ours. In the same way the faith of John's audience came under threat, our faith does as well. Although it may not be through false teachers, our faith does come under threat when we experience suffering persecution, everyday trouble. Some of that might be Wednesday <laughs> for a lot of you. Uh, maybe it's whisking a, a, a kindergartner off to school for the first time or uh, trying to put together a teaching lesson that you have for 20 years and trying to muster up the strength to give it the vigor uh, that those kids deserve. Maybe those are some of the everyday troubles that you experience in the midst of these, we're tempted to question God and his plans for us in this world when our situation oftentimes comes, becomes unsettling. Now, the, the situation I've tried to focus on here is, is, is ours at RBC. It may be the case that our pastor's retirement might lead us to question what's next. This might be an opportunity for our faith to come under threat. Who will our next pastor be? Will he love the same things that we love? Will he be passionate about what we're passionate about. Furthermore, do I trust the search committee and my elders to find the right man? Remember, continue to pray. Although we don't have specific answers to these questions, we do have an answer strong enough to scare away any uncertainty or doubt. Verse 20 again, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. At the end of the day, when our faith comes under threat, we can be certain of this. God has granted us eternal life. God hears our prayers. 
God has freed us from the bondage of sin and death. God has marked us as his own. And finally, God has given us understanding. Amen? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to be exposed to such wonderful truths. None of us deserve it, Lord. We were all running away from you, and you in your grace and kindness um, cried out, and you say that your sheep hear your voice, and so we have heard your voice. It would be enough to, to help us in some way, but that you have given us so many things. You've blessed us in so many ways. I don't know what to do as a, as a, as a final and, uh, or a better implication than, than just to praise you, God. Just to acknowledge that none of this is in our own strength and all of it is, is because of your son, that you sent your son to die for, for sinners like, like us, Lord. And so as we uh, think about all of these ways, as we rejoice in all of the ways that you have uh, come to our aid, Lord, I pray that as we sing this final song, we would just be praising you for all you've done and all that you continue to do and will do in our lives. Uh, It is in Christ's name we pray, amen.